Welcome to the Beyond Sugar Freedom Podcast. I'm your host, Danielle Dame, holistic nutrition coach and speaker. Together, we'll be diving into much more than just another conversation around sugar addiction and nutrition. But more importantly, I'll be guiding you through the inner work and spiritual healing that lies at the root of your unhealthy habits with food. Let's dive in. Hey, hey, everyone. Welcome back. Your host, Danielle Dame here, sugar freedom expert and somatic embodiment coach. And today we have an incredible interview, an incredible guest joining us. Sarah is a dear friend of mine that I met years ago in the online space and have been watching her take the world by storm, helping women really heal their relationship with alcohol. And a lot of what Sarah is doing ties so deeply into exactly what we're all navigating here around food and sugar. And I know many of you listening, ladies, I know I struggled with this as well, often food and alcohol go hand in hand. There's often this having a, having a treat and having a glass of wine at the same time. So I knew I needed to bring Sarah in to talk about drinking and this gray area drinking more specifically that Sarah so beautifully explains in this episode. So I'll leave that to her. But for those who don't know who Sarah is, she is a certified women's health and well-being coach an accredited gray area drinking coach and a keynote speaker sharing her journey to sobriety and impact of alcohol on mental and physical health to global audiences. After developing what she describes as a dysfunctional relationship with alcohol, Sarah made the decision to actually remove alcohol from her, her life completely in early 2019, and she has never looked back. She now works with women across the globe, guiding them from feeling lost, stuck, out of control, something that she fully understands herself, into a healthier and happier way of living and being. So in this episode, you're going to hear Sarah talk about her raw and vulnerable story of understanding the role that alcohol was playing in her life and how she really hit her rock bottom with understanding that it was, it was no longer serving her and actually causing her so much more harm than she had ever imagined. She explains so eloquently in this episode about what is gray area drinking. I know for me a few years ago, I'd never heard this term before. And I know many of you, this might be a brand new term. And she explains this, this, this beautifully and this understanding that, you know, many of us are not quite alcoholics, right? We're not quite that dependent physically, and emotionally and spiritually on alcohol, but there's this area in between where it's still dysfunctional and it's still really causing us harm where we might not even be aware that it is. She shares with us the warning signs. You know, how do you actually know if you're a gray area drinker? We talk about the shocking research and truth behind what alcohol is actually doing in our bodies, especially uniquely to women. We talk about why women are actually drinking now at record levels, why women are, are suffering more and more and drinking more and more every year. What's going on specifically here with women? And then of course we switch gears and Sarah shares some of her best tips around alternatives to, to drinking, you know, and if you choose and want to navigate this path, what are some things that you can do instead, right? In these social situations or these times of night when you're tired and exhausted after a busy day and you just want to drink, what are some other things that you can do? And then wrapping things up, Sarah shares 
what the process actually looks like to remove alcohol from your life. And more importantly, what are those different phases that you are going to go through over the first six months, the first year, the first three years? What are some of the things that you can actually look forward to? And really the beautiful truth of what life looks like without alcohol. So these are actually just a few things that we talk about in, in today's episode. So I wanted to give you a little teaser before we dive in. And I just know that this is such an important topic and an important episode. And I am always learning from Sarah, always being inspired to look at my own relationship with alcohol and where I am landing on that spectrum. And I hope that you find this inspiring as well. And I hope that you take this conversation that Sarah and I have and reach out to her, reach out to me, reach out for support if this is something that you are ready to actually look at in your own life. So without further ado, enough talking from me. Let's get into that episode and play that interview with Sarah Rusbatch right now. Hello, hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode with our very special guest today. Sarah Rusbatch is here in the house with us. How are you doing, Sarah? I'm very well, thank you. How are you doing? Good, pretty good. Well, you know, the truth is, as I was sharing before we, we hit record here, I've had a really tough couple weeks, so I'm not 100% good, but I will be okay. And I, I know that you get that in a lot of this journey that we've both been on and doing the emotional work is hard. <laughs> it's hard to navigate life's ups and downs and no longer have those old crutches, right? Whether it's alcohol or sugar, um, which is what we're gonna be diving into today. So I'm just so excited that you're here. And this feels like, as I was sharing with you before we hit record, long overdue. Uh, you and I have known each other for a few years now and have yeah. been to each other's groups and um, it's been incredible. And I can't believe I haven't had you on the show yet. And especially with this topic, which I know so many of you listening really struggle with drinking or aren't quite sure if, if you actually do have a problem with drinking, which is obviously what we're going to be diving into today. So let's, let's dive right in, Sarah. And I think a really great place to start would be for those who aren't familiar with you. Uh, maybe you could share a little bit of your story, you know, with your health journey and obviously getting into the amazing work that you're doing today. Sure. Yeah. So just interrupt me if you want to ask anything as, as I kind of go. But so I'm a, let's start here with talking about kind of present day what I do. I'm a great area drinking coach. And a, probably a lot of your listeners are going, what the hell is a great area drinking coach? What does that even mean? Um, and I think that's a really good place to start because up until recently, the conversation around alcohol has been, you're an alcoholic, or you're a social drinker. And when we think about an alcoholic, we think, well, that's someone who wakes up with trembling hands every morning and has to reach for a drink in the morning. Perhaps they're homeless, they're drinking out of brown paper bags on the park bench, they've lost their job, their careers, their homes, their driving licenses, and they're kind of like that end stage physical addiction to alcohol. So that's what we old school used to talk about an alcoholic as being. And if you didn't fit into that category, then you were just a social drinker. Perhaps you'd call yourself a big drinker. But but that was something in our modern world society that's almost applauded and something that you you kind of go, oh yeah, I can handle my booze. I'm a big drinker. I can match the lads pint for pint, which was my whole story for much of my life. So gray area drinking is talking about that that place in the middle where we haven't reached physical dependency on alcohol. So we don't wake up in the morning with trembling hands needing to reach for a drink. Gray area drinkers 
often don't drink every day, or if they do, they're certainly high functioning. They're holding down jobs, they're um, raising kids, they're, I mean, I was blimmin' running half marathons and, and all the rest of it. So on the outside, I was high functioning, but my drinking had got to a point where I didn't have a healthy relationship with alcohol. And so the way I like to describe gray area drinking is a scale of one to 10, one being someone who rarely drinks, maybe they have a glass of champagne at a wedding or they don't drink at all. 10 being someone with that that physical dependency on alcohol who needs to go into a medical detox to be able to safely withdraw from alcohol. Because let's remember that alcohol is one of only three substances that the human body can die from withdrawal after becoming so dependent on it. So that's one in 10 on that scale. To me, gray area drinkers fall into about a four to an eight. So we've stopped just drinking socially. We're not just drinking every now and then, but nor are we physically dependent. So we're at that level where we're drinking dysfunctionally. Maybe we're drinking to numb emotions. We're drinking to mask social anxiety. We're the you know, we've had a stressful day. The first thing we think of is I've got to go home and have a wine. We have an argument with our partner. The first thing we do is have a wine. And we often find ourselves making rules around alcohol. So I'm only going to drink Friday and Saturday. I'm not allowed to drink before five o'clock. I'm not allowed to drink unless it's outside with other people. Like we, we start forming these rules because we're trying to keep boundaries around our relationship with alcohol because we know it's not necessarily healthy or it's not necessarily serving us. Um, but the problem for most people when they're making rules is that they're also breaking them. Um, and that's one of those clear signs that we're falling into that gray area drinking category. Does that kind of explain that? Or is there anything you want to ask me on that? Yeah, no, that is, that's brilliantly explained. Obviously you've, you've explained this a lot. Um, and I remember when you first explained it to me, um, there were many times in my life where I can relate to being in that four to eight zone, right? Being like, wow, this is, this is dysfunctional and this is not healthy. Um, can you speak a little bit more to uh, your story um, and actually the journey? Like how did you discover that this was going on for you and and what was it that actually made you you know give up alcohol and really make that change yeah so i it's incredible what you unpack with hindsight and what you start to realize as being kind of some of the reasons that you were using where you created that dependency or that use on something whether it's sugar whether it's alcohol whether it's social media whether it's people pleasing whatever the thing is for most of us it has come from a place of soothing pain, right? We're not stupid. We don't do something that makes us feel crap the next day, leaves us with hangovers, has us vomiting, you know, within four hours of drinking. And we don't keep doing that if we're not also getting something from it. Um, And looking back, what I can see is I had, on the surface, a great childhood, but, you know, mum and dad stayed together. There was me and my brother. We you know, we weren't wealthy, but nor were we poor. We could afford our one holiday a year. We had, you know, a nice home and all the rest of it. But there were definitely things under the surface that to the naked eye, you wouldn't necessarily know were there. But having done years of therapy now and sort of unpacking all of that, I can see things like, you know, by the time I was 13, I'd been to five different schools. I'd moved around a lot. I'd always been the new girl trying to fit in, trying to kind of make people like me. What can I do to to, to get people to want to be friends with me? And, and that's quite a lot to take on as, as quite a young child, right? Where you're, um, And the, the last move we did was when I was 13, which is such a difficult time to move. We moved from Scotland to England. 
I had this terrible Scottish accent, a really bad perm, really spotty skin. I was quite overweight. And I was like, and I went from this quite kind of local working class high school where we didn't even have a uniform to this really posh all girls school where like if your skirt was above your knee, you got a detention. And it was like, I was so out of my comfort zone. And what I started doing at that point was I would go home and I would eat because I didn't have any friends. Uh, My mum and dad were really struggling in their marriage at this time. So I could see that they weren't really emotionally available to me. My brother was going through his own issues, trying to fit into his boys school with all of the stuff that comes with that. And so I felt incredibly lonely. And I remember, Danny, I used to come home and I would get the crumpets. I'd put them in the toaster, one after the other, after the other. I would smear them with thick chocolate spread and I would sit and eat. And in that moment, I felt comforted. And I felt soothed. And they say that sugar's the gateway drug, right? And so I didn't even realize back then that that's what I was doing. So of course, what happens with that is your skin gets spottier. The weight keeps on piling on. You become more unhappy and miserable. And so that that cycle continues until I discovered alcohol, which was only um, about 18 months later. I was very young to start drinking. And we used to kind of go down by this time, you know, I'd made some friends. We'd go down the local park. We'd fill up soda stream bottles with any kind of alcohol we could find in our parents drinks cabinet so it'd be this disgusting concoction of Malibu, Bacardi, Martini, vodka, gin you'd mix it all together you'd add a wee bit of coke on the top you'd go down the park you'd drink your drink you'd play spin the bottle and snog the local boys from the estate down the road you'd vomit in the bushes and then you'd go home and that was kind of my initiation into drinking and I could see from the amount that you're nodding that some of this you're kind of resonating with right (laughs) yeah I've been there yeah yeah um but what I discovered that I loved about alcohol was I immediately felt accepted I felt like one of the group It was my nervous system, which was constantly on and constantly activated, trying to find ways to get people to like me so that I could fit in. That kind of relaxed because you know what alcohol is like. You have a few drinks with someone and instantly you're my best friend. And that was all I ever wanted to hear. That was like music to my ears. And so when I discovered alcohol, that was a little thing inside my brain kind of went, ah, this is how you make friends. This is how you get connection. This is how you get to be liked. This is how you get to fit in. And of course, I didn't know any of this was subconsciously happening for me. All I thought was, yeah, I love getting drunk. And so what continued for me from that point on was using alcohol as a way to meet people, fast track friendships, create connection. And don't get me wrong, I was having loads of fun along the way. It wasn't like my alcohol use in my late teens or even in my 20s or early 30s was problematic. It was heavy drinking, but it was social drinking. So, you know, I'd moved to London after university. I got a job. And, you know, the first time that you're making your own money, you you know, you've left uni, you're flat sharing. It was just an extension of university. You could go to the pub any night of the week. There was always someone to go and get drunk with. And so all of that continued for me. And the time that it really changed for me when my drinking, I can really pinpoint as it went from being this social thing that I did to becoming more of a crutch was after we had just moved to Australia and I'd got married by this point I'd had a baby it was 2010 we moved to Australia and once again 
little Sarah, the, the little Sarah that had kind of like been the one that didn't feel like she fitted in, didn't have any friends. She got super activated because I'd moved to the other side of the world. But the problem was that I just got pregnant again straight away. And so I couldn't drink. And so my, my fail-safe tool of how to meet people, how to socialize, how to make friends by going and getting drunk with them wasn't available to me. And I kind of didn't know how to cope with that. And I really, really struggled. And as soon as I'd had my baby and I'd stopped breastfeeding, that was when alcohol for me became a crutch. It became something that I was relying on at the end of the day. I was deeply lonely. I was deeply homesick. I was perhaps suffering a wee bit of postnatal depression. I was back working, having to put my daughter in daycare because we needed the money and we didn't have any family here in Australia. My, you know, I was leaving my babies every day to go to daycare, to go to this job that I hated where they would all talk about going out for work drinks and they wouldn't invite me. Um, like it was just, and you can imagine how much that affected me as the one that had always felt like left out and didn't fit in and stuff. So I would just go home and drink. And alcohol for me became something that I used to mask emotions. It became something that I used to deal with the stress of working four days a week, raising two young kids, running a house, having no family nearby to help, you know, all of those things. And through my 40s, that just became more and more and more. And then I started noticing the negative impact that alcohol was having. And honestly, it wasn't until my 40s that I really started to experience the physical effect of this long-term alcohol use, because I've been drinking since I was 14. So other than my pregnancies, I'd had no time where I hadn't been drinking. Yeah, I'd take the odd break here and there and go, I'm doing dry January. And I'd literally just count down the days and then go get absolutely smashed on the 1st of February. So it wasn't really a proper break from alcohol. And in my 40s, what started to happen was every time I drank, I would wake up at 3 a.m. and couldn't get back to sleep, which I now know is the impact that the alcohol has on the brain releasing cortisol, which is the stress hormone. So that would be racing around my body, wake me up at 3 a.m., couldn't get back to sleep, to the point where I started taking sleeping tablets every time I drank so that I didn't wake up at 3 a.m. Like, it never occurred to me, maybe don't drink. It was, how can I get my alcohol and then not get the 3 a.m. wake up? But you can imagine what it's like to wake up after a bottle of wine and a sleeping tablet at six in the morning to get up and deal with young kids and start the day. Like, I felt wretched most of the time. I felt sad. I felt lethargic. I felt demotivated. I was starting to get anxiety. I was like overthinking everything. My estrogen levels had gone completely off the chart. And I remember my naturopath saying to me, your hormones are so dysregulated and your estrogen is so high, you need to do a liver detox. And I was like, what do you mean? What has estrogen got to do with my liver? And of course, I understand now why it's got a hell of a lot to do with the liver. But at the time, I didn't understand any of that. So there was a few warning signs. And then there was a couple of incidents where the alcohol use had just gone a bit too far. Um, one where I'd fallen over, where I had a 40th birthday party, I fell on my face, I cut my lip open, I cut my nose. I got a black eye and I just kind of said to myself, right, I need to take a break. I've got to reset is what I said to myself. I've just got to do a little detox. So I, this was 2017 and I aimed to do 21 days and I ended up doing 100. And I was just like, oh, wow. Like this is 
what it's like to wake up every morning feeling positive, feeling well slept, feeling energized, feeling motivated. And I just loved this feeling. It was like this whole new lease of life. But towards the end of the 100 days, I was like, hmm, but I can't never drink again because that would just be weird because I'm Sarah the party girl and I'm Sarah the one who everyone expects to be drinking all the time. But I was like, it's fine. I've done 100 days. I've reset. I'll now be fixed. I won't drink at the same level anymore. Everything will be okay. I had another drink and I had one glass of wine. Um, and I went, aha, look at me. I can now be a one glass kind of girl. Within three weeks, I was back to drinking the same amount as before, um, as the story goes. And so what followed for me then was two years of taking breaks, going back to drinking, trying to moderate, never being able to, until finally April 2019, I set the date and I had my last drink and just over four years now. Wow. 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 So many uh, things in that in that story. Thank you for for sharing so vulnerably and, and real. And I'm, I'm nodding along as you're talking as I'm thinking a lot of that resonates with me and food, like thinking of my childhood and how I was trying to fit in. And, yeah. um, you know, you're you're preaching to the choir here on the on this podcast because we've we talk a lot about trauma. Like we understand the root here of our addictive patterns, right, being this stored in our nervous system and um, a lot of these these old patterns of, you know, these safety mechanisms that have been there in our childhood from no doubt all the moving and all of all of the uncertainty and all of the the, the need for people to like us. Right? There's so many levels. And yeah. you know, I, I resonate with you in a big way. I used to think like, no, my childhood was fine. Same thing. Like my parents were happy, like we could afford things. I had friends like what, what's going on there. But when you start digging deeper, there's a lot of like energetic pieces that are that are at play. So, yeah, I really, really resonate with that and, and appreciate you sharing. I think a lot of our listeners can can resonate with that as well. And maybe hearing a little bit of themselves in, in your story of especially the end there, right, where you, you made this like 100 days. And I know so many listening here have done 100 days off sugar or, or even alcohol before. Right. And then I'm fixed. I'm healed. But without, as you and I both know, doing that deep, deep healing work, there's there's never going to be the healing, right? We need to actually go in and do the work. And I've, I've seen you obviously doing that over the last few years and um, so much. So uh, before we move forward, this, this kind of seems like a silly question, but I want to ask it because there's a lot of a lot of women listening that we we know that alcohol is bad for us. We know it's a toxin. We know sugar's bad for us. We know coffee is not necessarily always good for us. Like we know these things, but sometimes it can be a really helpful reminder as to how bad they are. So can you share a little bit about, you know, what does alcohol actually do to our body uh, other than mess up your sleep? You know, what are some of the other really key things? Feel free to throw in any statistics you might have um, or just really helping women understand who are listening to this, the the actual effect that, especially over time, that alcohol is having on our, on our physical and mental body. Yeah, great question. And I think the first thing that, you know, immediately comes to mind that is so important to share, that is something that is brushed under the carpet that no one wants to talk about is the link between alcohol and breast cancer. So the statistics in Australia now show that one in five breast cancer diagnoses is directly caused by alcohol. And the irony of that, Danny, is the number of breast cancer fundraisers I go to that have free-flowing champagne. It's like, well, you wouldn't go to a lung cancer fundraiser and be given a pack of fags on the way in, so why the hell are we given a bottle of champagne on every table? 
Um, to give you a wee bit of the science, alcohol causes our circulating estrogen to increase. So what that means is not only are we increasing our estrogen, um, but secondly, our liver has to process all of that estrogen. And when our liver is either not functioning properly, when we've been eating way too much processed food, sugar, we're drinking too much alcohol, caffeine, pesticides, toxins, when we've got an overworked liver, the liver will always prioritize foreign substances into the body before it um, works on processing a a substance that our body has made itself, in this case, estrogen. So if our body is constantly busy with our liver having to process the sugar, the processed food, the um, the caffeine and, and everything else, it doesn't, and the alcohol, it doesn't get a chance to get to the estrogen. And that circulating excess estrogen is where the complications come and the direct link to, to hormone-related cancers, particularly breast cancer. So that's the first thing that I think it's so important um, to talk about. The second thing is alcohol and anxiety. So we now know that when we drink alcohol, we actually release, our brain releases the stress hormone cortisol. So people who drink, even moderately, people who drink a couple of glasses a few times a week, um, have a higher baseline of cortisol in their body than people who don't drink at all which I think is absolutely um, fascinating when the number one reason most people drink is because of anxiety and because of yeah. stress and they're actually making themselves more anxious and stressed by drinking alcohol. The third thing is that alcohol um, is linked to depression, that it causes a huge spike in serotonin and then a big, big drop. And then we, we actually can start depleting those levels of serotonin, um, which is our, our happy hormone, um, gives us that sense of well-being. Alcohol destroys our gut health, another link to serotonin because 90% of serotonin is made in the gut. So alcohol kills the good gut bacteria and is the number one cause of leaky gut. It directly causes seven types of cancer um, and has an impact on, on many others. The really interesting thing for women to know as well about why alcohol affects women differently is a couple of things. So a woman's liver, we actually make and produce less of the alcohol um, metabolizing enzyme called alcohol dehydrogenase. Women have less of that than a man. So what that means is for women, more alcohol enters our bloodstream than with a man drinking the same amount. So women are more prone to all of the health risks associated with drinking than men are, just because more alcohol enters our bloodstream. The second thing to know is for women, from our late 30s onwards, our liver starts to shrink in volume by one to 2% every year. So what this means is a woman, say in her early 50s or something like that, her liver is significantly smaller than a woman in her 20s. And this is why as we get older, we start feeling the effects of alcohol more, but why, again, we have these risks with breast cancer um, and other um, health-related illnesses. And then the third thing to know is that when we have more estrogen in um when we're depending on where we are in our hormone cycle and our periods the times of the month that we have more estrogen means that we're going to be more we're going to get more intoxicated than the times of the month when our estrogen is lower but of course we as women don't often know what time of the month our estrogen is high or low so this is why sometimes 
And this is why I'm so passionate about sharing this message, especially with young women, because you could go out and have half a bottle of wine and be absolutely fine and feel like you've got all your kind of faculties about you. And then other times you could go out, have half a bottle of wine and go into blackout and not really remember and put yourself in situations that might be unsafe because you don't, you know, you've gone into blackout. And so it's really important to know that um, we will be affected by alcohol differently depending on where we are in our cycle. Wow, that's so fascinating. I did not know that about the liver shrinking. That's well, like that makes so much sense. I know, sense. I know. Yeah. It's just astonishing. Wow, wow. Yeah, and I'm, I'm having this curiosity based on like the first the first piece that you mentioned there around obviously this this huge link to breast cancer. I've heard this so many times before, um, and just kind of bringing bringing another just curiosity and lens to that. Um, you know, the, you know, I love the work of Gabor Mate, and I, I think you're familiar with him as well, and the, the research he's done around addiction. The last time I, I heard him speak, um, he was saying that they're, they're finding this correlation with, I don't remember if it was specifically breast cancer or just cancers in general, and people pleasers. Yes, So people who that. have never uh, really, you know, spoken their truth, right? And just always bent over backwards, never processed their emotions, never... And those are the people that are more likely to be coping with alcohol and sugar, yeah. right? So I'm curious how much of it is the role of the alcohol? How much is it the energetic role of stuffing ourselves down our whole lives and not really honoring our emotions? And I mean, obviously there's not just one thing, but there's there's correlations here that are really, really fascinating, both with personality traits and obviously these behaviors that then are, we, we are driven towards as, yeah. you know, trying to get people to like us, whether we're eating Absolutely. or drinking and, and all these things. So yeah, yeah you've heard that yeah. before. Yeah, I just finished reading his book, The Myth of Normal, and like so much information. My highlighter, I think, ran out by the time I'd finished it because I was like, oh my goodness. So good. Yeah. That's it. I need to get it in paper paper copy. I have it in audiobook, uh, but I can't highlight that way, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So why do you think, you know, curiosity here, I mean, you mentioned obviously the impact that alcohol is having on women in a different way. Why do you think, or actually do you think, I should ask you that first, right? That women, you know, are, are struggling with alcohol more than men? Or do you feel like, you know, this is a problem that is, you know, more specific to, to women? The research is showing that middle-aged women, so women aged kind of 40 to 65, are drinking more than ever. I think um, on Huberman's podcast, I think he said don't quote me on this ladies listening to this, it's something like alcohol use in middle-aged women has increased by something like 80%. It's something along those lines. And the reason is this, we, it, it's a two, it's a double-sided thing where you've got, we're more stressed than ever before. Women's role in society has changed so much, even since our parents' generation, in terms of the fact that women are often working full-time, but we're also juggling the lion's share of, of the work in the house and raising children. <clears throat> We're doing it on our own for the first time. We've moved away from our extended families. We don't have support from cousins, aunties, parents just down the road. We're often doing it completely on our own. We're working. We've got the lion's share of responsibility for running the house and looking after children. We've got the social media impact of comparison where we feel like we need to be look good. We need to be making home cooked meals. We need to be, you know, the best parent possible. We've got expectations that we're exercising, that we're going to yoga, that we're um, doing meditation. Like the pressure is relentless and alcohol 
provides a really quick fix to escape that feeling. So I've got a group of 15,000 women and I asked them, what's the reason that you drink? And there were three responses that just, I feel sad every time I say this, bored, stressed and lonely. And why do we have a generation of middle-aged women who on paper look like they've got it all. We fought for our equal rights. We're earning our own money. We've got the vote. We can do all the things. But yet so many other things have not shifted alongside that with us having more support at home or husbands stepping up and doing equal distribution of, you know, raising kids and and doing stuff um, in the house. And so we've got so many women who are so stressed incredibly lonely because we're disconnected we don't have time for for much in-person connection with people that we really love spending time with and then we become bored because what happens is alcohol actually makes us really lazy because we get a big dopamine hit sitting on the sofa doing nothing but putting a glass to our mouth and just constantly and so we stop hobbies we stop doing things that we find interesting or that light us up or give us a creative outlet or that we find engaging, stimulating, inspiring. Suddenly our world becomes so small that we're literally going to work, raising kids, running the house and then looking forward to our wine at the end of the day. And that is all we've got in our lives. So that's one part of it. And then the other part is Big alcohol has deliberately started targeting middle-aged women because they've seen the stress that women have and they've started marketing their product as the solution. And we're knackered, we're exhausted, we're stressed, we're overwhelmed. And if someone says, when you drink this, all that's going to go away, you're going to do it, right? So you've got the constant messaging and marketing, even when it's not direct advertising, it's product placement. You watch a movie or TV show and the middle-aged woman comes home from work. She's exhausted. She's stressed. The first thing she does is go to the fridge, pour a glass of wine and have a chat. Like We're constantly getting that message thrown at us that alcohol is the solution to the problem, but it's not. And then alcohol becomes the problem in itself. And so we're in this really vicious cycle. And so the work I'm doing now is... is is not just about removing alcohol, it's addressing those three factors of boredom, stress and loneliness so that women can create a life where they don't even need the alcohol anymore. Yeah, wow, so, so beautifully said. Obviously I see the exact same patterns with sugar, right? Whether, and we just have sometimes a different vice and some of you listening, it's both. Right. Totally. And often it was totally. both. for me, it was both yeah. for sure. Yeah. Right. And, and sugar being, you know, such a bigger factor for me. And, and it's, it's such a, I really love what you said because I 100% agree. I see this in my practice over the years and just looking at the world in, you know, this wonderful movement that women, you know, women can do anything now, right? And we can speak our truth and we can be in our power and we can be celebrated. And we feel like because we can do everything, it means we still have to do everything on our own, right? And there's this kind of this like being put on a pedestal, I notice with a lot of my clients, even myself of like, you know, I'm successful if I can handle all these balls in the air at the same time. And it's, it's totally, you know, it's totally crushing us. And we don't, we don't, we're not meant to live like that, especially with the lack of community, right? And support that our, yeah. our society is missing here in Canada as well. That, that connection yeah. and community and support with even just the emotional labor and the emotional work that we go through as, as women on a monthly basis, right? If not daily, yeah. um, it's tricky. So what would you say then, you know, now everybody listening to this is, is probably having, you know, sort of the, those moments of, oh, that's, that's me. Like I'm resonating to this. And, um, but I, 
but I'm terrified and I'm, I'm not ready to, to do, to, to get off, you know, alcohol. But can you share with, with everybody listening, you know, what are some alternatives? Like what, what are some of the, you know, kind of switching gears here is like, what can women do instead, right? When they're bored, stressed and lonely, or like, what are some of the, the tools that first sort of steps that you share to support women in, in kind of navigating and, and finding these alternatives to, to actually drinking that wine at the end of the day? Yeah, and I think it has to come, it, it depends on everyone's alcohol use, because for some people, they work with me and, and all we focus on at the start is removing alcohol. And it's just finding those strategies and those ways so that you can get through each day um, and we're not drinking and, it, and it's not the right time to be adding in too much other stuff, but we've got to be adding in something because if we take alcohol out and alcohol has been acting as a, a solution in some way, we need to find other things that we can add in that act as the solution. And so, you know, some of the basics for me have always been like exercise, it's been movement. It's the things that give you those natural dopamine hits so that you are not craving alcohol at the end of every day. It's looking at your diet. So I do a neurotransmitter assessment with my clients and I can actually see if, if they're depleted in dopamine or GABA or serotonin and if they are then we can work on nutrition supplements lifestyle to start to add that in so that they're not so depleted in, in the key neurotransmitters it's then looking at connection so how am I we, we can't remove alcohol and then just stay home and not see anyone and um, because we're just going to feel lonely disconnected and then we create this view that a life without alcohol is boring and awful we have to still have a social life but we have to be really selective with what that social life looks like so for example, in the early days of sobriety, I would not go and stand at a pub and watch everyone get pissed and be the sober driver waiting for them to stop slurring and repeating themselves. And then I go and be the Uber and drive them all home. Like That's not fun, right? So it's, oh, I catch up with friends for lunches and brunches and breakfasts and walks and yoga. And it's just doing things differently, but making sure you're still getting that connection. Joining a sober community is so important because, as you know, the power of community I wouldn't have got sober if I hadn't been in the, the group that I was in, which was the Facebook community back in 2017. Um, and I now have communities. And as you know, I run programs, 30 day programs for women to remove alcohol and come in together to share, to be able to go in and go, oh my God, my husband's being a knob. I really want to have a drink. And then someone will always be there and go, right, doesn't matter. Don't, don't have a drink. Go and do this. And so just the power and the support of feeling seen and feeling understood in your challenge, because it is hard and it can feel so lonely when everyone around you is drinking and you're trying to make that change. And so that connection piece is so important. Yeah. Yeah. That's so beautiful. Yeah. Thank you for sharing. Um, you know, th this like building your toolbox, that's what I always kind yeah. of call it, right? Is building like, what are, what are these things knowing where my triggers are, right? And where, knowing why, I mean, why in the first place, right? Even understanding what it is, like, is it, is it cause you're lonely? Is it cause you're stressed? I know you do a lot of work like that with your clients and getting to what's going on here. And then, you know, building the toolbox based off of that, of, of what you need. Um, I'm curious, cause this is something that, you know, just thinking of my old patterns of like with alcohol and with sugar and food was kind of this like, well, I'm too tired at the end of the day to do any of that stuff, right? Like I'm even too tired to, to you know, go for a walk or uh, call a friend, right? And there's kind of this, at least for me, I don't know if, if you've, you know, worked with anyone, there used to be, yeah, it was just this kind of this laziness, right? Which is this vicious cycle of like, I'm too tired to do anything else that I know is going to make me happier, right? And going to be more nourishing, whether it's even just taking a bath or, 
you know, going outside in the garden, right? Or doing these things. Uh, so how, how do you support women sort of over that hump, right? Like, is yeah. it, is it a matter of, I mean, obviously being in community and really just facing it head on and, and getting through those, those hard parts or like, I just, I just, again, knowing that that was, that was my old pattern is kind of like, oh, I'm just too tired. And sometimes honestly, that shows up with me in Netflix now. It's like, oh, I just can't, don't have capacity for anything else today. It's been a big day. Obviously I've got lots on my plate as a woman now. And I just want to veg out, right? I just need to disconnect. I just need to like chill out. How do, how do we get over that? So I think it depends. I think that we need, I get, I'm very much a fan of tough love. And I think we have to be really, really honest with ourselves. Am I making excuses? And at what point am I going to stop making excuses so that I give myself the best possible chance of succeeding in this journey? Um, because I was the queen of making excuses. And, you know, I think once we flip our thinking to going, it is nobody else's responsibility to make my life perfect. It is nobody else's responsibility to support, to, to make my life the way I want it. It is only mine. So I've got two choices and I've got home from work and I'm feeling tired. I can't be asked going for a walk, but I know it's going to make me feel good. I know that it's going to mean the wine which is going to go and, and, and I'm not going to get the wine calling for tonight. What do I do? You know, like we, we've got to start asking ourselves those questions. But sometimes the answer is I'm utterly exhausted. I've got nothing in me and self-love for me right now involves getting a cup of tea, lying on the sofa and watching Netflix. Like I think we always know when we ask ourselves to be truthful, whether we're bullshitting ourselves or whether we are really, really tired. The second thing to remember is for some of my clients, the first month of alcohol withdrawal means we feel shocking. We're not not in terms of physical withdrawal. We're not we don't have we're not being sick. We don't feel like we haven't got the shakes or anything. We can feel very very tired. For some of my clients, it takes six weeks before their energy starts to return because your body has gone through so much in processing all of that alcohol that it needs time to repair. And sometimes in the first few weeks, it's getting up in the morning to exercise so that you've done it in the morning. And for me, Danny, in my early days of sobriety, every single night, it was a five o'clock bath. And that got me out of the kitchen so I wasn't around where my normal drinking time would be in the kitchen, pouring wine, cooking dinner. I would be more constructive with how I did things. I would prep dinner first thing in the morning so I knew that it was gonna, I didn't have to be in the kitchen for half an hour in the evening. And I had a bath and I relaxed and I read my book. And so it's what are the things that are available to me while my body is repairing because if we've been drinking many of my clients have been drinking for 20 30 even 40 years quite regularly and quite consistently we don't suddenly feel great after two days off alcohol stays in your liver for 72 hours and that's just having a couple of glasses if we've been drinking consistently for 40 years there is so much damage that has been done but the beauty of it is in knowing that actually repair is possible and that's what i find so empowering and so hopeful is that we can actually make the decision to repair. And I literally, like I've been up since quarter to five this morning and I wake up and I just am energized. I've had restorative sleep. I feel great. And it's such a, like that was me four years ago, quarter to five in the morning, bouncing out of bed just felt so impossible. And, and so I say, I share that to give your listeners hope that actually you can create the life you want. You've just got to want it enough. 
Yeah, that's powerful. That's so powerful. Thank you for that message. Yeah, and the tough love, uh, which is very needed sometimes. And we do in any moment. What are we choosing? Right? Yeah. And, and what, what future are we creating? And yeah, that you, you said it beautifully, of course. So, so powerful. So now, you know, I'd, I'd love if you could explain, because um, again, I know this is probably a question on listeners' minds, is this process of getting off of alcohol, right? I, I, I'm such a planner and I know a lot of my listeners are as well. Of like, well, what's it going to look like? Like, how hard is it going to be? What are the phases that I'm going to go through? I know you mentioned that, you know, not a lot of people actually have shakes or go through withdrawals like that, but what does the process of removing alcohol actually look like? I know you've mentioned a few things like, you know, obviously having to switch the way that you socialize and really pay attention to obviously the, the old ways that are, are not serving you to not be in that temptation space with alcohol, but what does that process look like? And then of course, you know, what is, what does life look like after alcohol? You've talked about that a little bit here, but would love if we kind of, as, as we sort of wrap things up, that you really hit home on, you know, where you are now, you know, four years sober and what kind of awaits for women um, on the other side of, of really committing to this and giving up alcohol. It's so beautiful that you've asked me this question because this morning when I um, got up, I was checking in on some of my messages and I had a voice note from one of my UK clients who's just entered her third year of sobriety and um she lives in the uk and she's we we still keep in touch and she said oh, i just wanted to give you this update this has happened this incredible career opportunity and how i've gone down this path and she said and it's so true sarah all the things that you said to me at the start are starting to happen so the first six months it's it's literally about not drinking so the first six months it's putting the foundations in place to make not drinking as easy as it can be so it's it's getting through each day, right? I mean, I think the first, particularly the first month, every day was like crossing off the calendar. Yes, I've done it. It's another day of not drinking. And slowly but surely, you stop thinking about it as much. And then you realize you've gone, oh, I've gone three or four days and I didn't think about needing a drink. And then oh, I've gone a week. And then, so it just starts to stretch out. And that first month is when you need the most support, which is why I offer the programs that I do to start you on that first month. Over the first kind of three to six months, you just get a bit more settled into your new way of doing things. You celebrate the positives. You start often having emotions that you've been blocking with alcohol start coming up. And I find lots of clients, well, I know for myself, I went into therapy um, and really dug deep into what that looked like. A lot of clients do that or they do some kind of deeper work to explore what what's my story where did my drinking come from what problem was alcohol the solution for it's because we've got to be curious and we start doing or for some people it doesn't have to involve therapy it's simply listening to some brilliant Gabor Mate podcast reading his book you can you don't always have to go into therapy you can sort of self-educate because I find that we have so much time right because we're not drinking anymore and so we've got the evenings that stretch out and and at first it can be like what do I do? What do I do? I'm, I'm alert and I'm awake and it's nine o'clock and I'm not used to feeling like this at nine o'clock. And so putting that energy, that motivation, that mental clarity into something. So a new hobby, it might be learning, it might be joining a choir or I've got clients who've gone back to tap dancing classes and drawing classes and knitting and crochet and, you know, and everything in between. So it's, it's, it's working on yourself. And I think that first year we kind of go inward and it's kind of who am I without alcohol 
So I have a program called Rediscovering Me, which is, okay, I've, I've taken the alcohol out, but who am I underneath that? Because for so many of us, the facade that we've built is, oh, I'm Sarah the party girl. I'm, you know, I'm this, and we've almost told ourselves that that's who we are. So if we remove the alcohol, then that can feel really, really confusing. Um, and we can feel very in limbo because we've lost our identity a little bit. So it's slowly but surely peeling that back to discover that. And then what I find is in the second year, we start to look outward and then we start going, okay, what changes might I want to make in my life, whether it's career. So for me, that involved retraining to become a health and wellbeing coach and then a gray area drinking coach. I see clients go back to study, go back to uni, change jobs. Um, You know, we haven't even had time to talk about the impact removing alcohol has on your relationship. If you've been in a relationship with someone who's been, um, you know, drinking a lot, and that's a whole other conversation that maybe we'll get to do another time. And so we can start looking at the things that we want to change in our life because we've got our sobriety under our belt. And then by the third and fourth year, we just know ourselves. We understand our triggers. We understand what motivates us. We've done some of the deeper work and we fully step into that space of going, my life will not accidentally end up awesome. I have to do the work to create the life I want. And it's my 100% responsibility to do that. And I think that when we fully live that message, everything starts to change. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's incredible. I, I love that you're starting to, I mean, you've been doing this long enough that you're seeing these patterns over the long term, right? Of like, what are the actual yeah. like phases and stages that we go through? And I think, you know, I know so many women with food and sugar, but I would imagine it's the same with alcohol, right? Is this, this fear of you know, losing something that's so important to us or, or losing exactly like you mentioned, that identity piece is so huge when we're, we're the person, you know, that, that always has the glass of wine or is yeah. always the, the fun party person and, and rediscovering, you know, who we really are in that process and what, what actually matters, right, without the crutches. And, and like you said, obviously doing the, the deep inner healing, which I know I want to talk with you another time as well. We're, we're going to have to have you back, obviously, if you yeah. have the show. But um, yeah. when we get together and talk about the emotional work and healing, um, that's always yeah. a great conversation as well. So yeah. we'd love to dive deeper into that because I know that's been a big part of your your learning and, and journey. But I, I think so many people believe that, you know, the, the first couple months – are going to be really hard and they may be but they kind of project that into this is always going to be hard right exactly. i know i didn't do like this yeah. is going to be miserable forever this month has been the worst month of my life trying to get off of alcohol or sugar it's going to be like this forever like we project and i think that's that's part of our subconscious brain that's trying to keep us safe and trying to do all this stuff but it's i love hearing you remind everybody that that's not the case right and and actually like how hard is it for you now to not drink like does it how does oh, I it even feel? think about it I'd say it probably took six months um, because this is the thing that people think that how hard it is that first month is how hard it will be forever. So they don't stick at it. Whereas, and that's where I think it's different doing it with someone like me as opposed to doing it on your own is because you've got those messages and you've got other women in the community who are ahead of you and they're going, stay with it, stay with it. It gets better. And like one of my clients described it to me the other day. She said, it's like going from living in black and white to living in color. And you don't realize Alcohol keeps your world so small, so small. It keeps your thoughts small, your beliefs small, the the way you think about yourself. And alcohol particularly keeps women small because when we have a life that is simply work, kids, home, husbands, and drinking, 
that is not a fulfilling life. And the thing you said before about it's hard to stop, it is hard to stop, but it's hard to stay drinking as well. Because stay, you know, it's hard to wake up every day hating yourself. It's hard to wake up every day when you can't even look at yourself in the mirror because you said you're only going to have one glass and once again you finish the bottle and oh my God, I'm a loser. I'm so ashamed. Why did I do that? I can't ever do anything that I say that I'm going to do. When those are the thoughts that you have every single morning, that's hard. And so it's kind of choose your hard because removing alcohol is hard, but it gets so much easier. Yeah. Yeah. That's so incredible that you, you mentioned that. Um, I think that that's really going to land a lot, you know, for, for women listening. I'm even thinking about some of the things that I went through in the past, like waking up, feeling ashamed, right? Feeling guilty, gaining weight, right? Feeling uncomfortable in my body, no longer feeling sexy, right? Like just wanting to hide more and more, right? Like these things where we really just are so disempowered, you know, when, when these things have, and anybody listening to this who is struggling and really resonating with what Sarah is sharing, obviously there's there's also no shame and guilt here from from either of us i know that right this is really just a conversation of awareness and any of you listening get to choose what your path is and what you want to do right there's there's um there's a gift in that right and to pay attention if any of what sarah shared today has kind of triggered you right or upset you or you know i'm always looking for those sort of those pieces as well right i don't agree with what sarah's sharing or no that's not going to work for me or i'm not i don't struggle with that you know, some sometimes those subconscious patterns will will really fight right for that. But there's a reason that you're still listening to this episode, and yeah. that you even clicked on it in the first place. And and I hope that yeah, the really everybody listening really takes what you're sharing here and runs with it. And I think it's really important on that note, Danny, to say that if you've developed a relationship with alcohol that is in some way dysfunctional, please know it is not your fault. Like, for a couple of reasons. Number one, alcohol is the only drug we have to justify not taking. It's marketed at us. It's sold at us. You say that you've given up smoking and people say to you, well done. You say you've stopped drinking and people say, don't be so boring. Like, if you have developed a, a, a dysfunctional relationship with alcohol like I did, it is not your fault. Secondly, alcohol is one of the top five most addictive substances on the planet. So developing a relationship with alcohol where there is an addiction there is not your fault. Alcohol is highly addictive. Thirdly, alcohol becomes a really, they say that it starts off as magic, then it becomes medicine, and then it becomes misery. And when we're at that point where alcohol has become medicine for us, please know that that is not your fault. Because in the short term, alcohol provides a freaking great solution to a problem. When we're stressed, alcohol's a depressant. It brings us down. When we want to escape our lives, when we want oblivion, when we don't want to feel the way that we're feeling, alcohol alters our, our brain state. So if we've ever used alcohol in that dysfunctional way, it is not our fault. But what is our responsibility to do is to decide do I still want to stay on this path or do I want to change? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I think that's a really beautiful way to, to wrap up this, this episode, Sarah. Thank you so much for being here, um, you know, for sharing your wisdom with us and vulnerably sharing your story with us. I, I just, I always get so much out of hearing you talk and hearing you share. And I appreciate that personally for me. Um, as well as, of course, for, for everybody listening. And um, I'll, of course, put all your links to come and connect with you under this episode in the show notes. So if anyone wants to learn more about what Sarah's up to, join one of her next amazing groups, which hopefully I'll come in and, and speak on. I know that uh, you've had me in before, and I absolutely love speaking to your community. Um, but definitely go and check out Sarah's website and everything that she's up to. Get on her list and, and stay connected because 
whether or not you're ready now to jump in and give up alcohol or start this process, um, or if you're maybe going to be ready in six months, I mean, now's obviously yeah. a chance to maybe start planting those seeds. And I run those programs every three months. The next one will be 1st of July, and then the one after that will be 1st of October. Fantastic. Thank you for clarifying that. That's fantastic. Thank you for being here, Sarah. I so appreciate our conversations, and I think we've got a couple other topics we're going to need to bring you back on the show for. <laughs> I know. There's always so much to talk about, and I'm launching my podcast soon as well, so I can't wait to bring you into mine. Oh, I didn't know I was going to ask you about that, actually. That is fantastic. You definitely, it feels like you should already have a podcast, right? I know. Yeah, it's so been in the making for a while, but um, I just, I'm writing a book at the moment, so that comes out on the 1st of February. So that is taking up all of my headspace and concentration. And once that's done, the podcast will start. Wow, congratulations. That's absolutely incredible. Please let us know when the book is available. I can obviously put it below in the show notes as well. That is incredible. Oh, you're doing some Thank amazing you. things in the world, Sarah. I'm so grateful for you. And, and I know everybody listening is as well. And can't wait for your podcast as well. Thank you so much for having me, Danny. I so appreciate it. Yes, wonderful. All right, everyone. Thanks for being here and listening to another episode. We'll see you on the next one. Thank you for tuning in to another episode. If you're loving what we talked about today, please remember to subscribe, leave a review, and share this episode with someone you love. And if you're ready to dive deeper into discovering your root causes and patterns that are keeping you hooked on sugar, be sure to check out our brand new free workshop series that will help you kick emotional eating for good. Find the link to download this free series and other amazing resources in the show notes below.